I think humans are far more programmable than we think. We all like to think we have really high levels of willpower. And if you think about how we use the Internet, like there's a lot that kind of modulates and changes our behavior in some ways good and in some ways bad. And so designing systems where we make sure that we change behavior intentionally and in a way that people want is really powerful. And counter to that, we're not always going to be in systems that always have our best interests at heart. And so I would highly recommend some version of mindfulness or quiet practice for people to be able to develop over time so they create their own buffer zones that they're able to manage their own programming. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Andy Korovos left a promising career at a top private equity firm to follow her passion and pursue intensive training as a software developer. She now works on the frontier of engineering and medicine as CEO and co-founder of Electra Labs, focused on the use of digital measures to support clinical research. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. And I'm David Shewitz. And today's show is sponsored by Idea Pharma, the industry's leading path-to-market strategy practice, bringing more great medicines to patients. You can find them at www.ideapharma.com. So, Lisa. <laughs> yes, David. <laughs> so, our gu- you've lost it. Our guest today was apparently on a fast and comfortable track towards a career in private equity when she stepped off the train to pursue a passion learning coding. Did you ever find yourself making a similar decision, making a non-obvious career choice uh, to pursue something you thought you might be more interested in? Well, I think coding would have been a non-obvious career choice for sure for me, and it's (laughs) definitely not the one I did. (laughs) But I've done this a couple of times, actually. I think about, you know, I started off in in tech, and I ended up in healthcare, and, you know, that was a pretty deliberate and abrupt change. And then I was in... um, you know, uh, recently really left the full-time venture role to take more of a consulting and operations role. And even though I still have a foot in the venture world, it's not quite the same. I mean, I think it's good to shake it up once in a while. Yeah, I always thought you were, Lisa, really always have inspired me as one of the bravest people where you're, you know, you really, I think, try to focus on what you're most interested in with the confidence that with, you know, with who you are, you're going to be able to make it work in a, and have serially in a range of settings. So I, <laughs> well, uh, I can assure you that you'll never read about me jumping into coding. Okay. <laughs> well, let's figure out how our guest today approached this, he said, tr- allowed transitioning. Um, we are delighted to welcome Andy, who is perhaps best described as a force of nature, both in general and specifically in digital medicine, which she distinguishes from digital health. So first, um, uh Welcome to the show, Andy. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So you have such an interesting backstory, which I promise we'll get to in a minute. But I wanted to start by asking what I know is an important and core question. What do you see as the difference between digital health and digital medicine? Yeah, I I think for me, um, and and probably why we're all working on something uh, around healthcare is that I definitely believe that we can do healthcare far better. And we have so many tools and there's so many opportunities to really better serve people, but somehow we keep missing the mark, I think, as a society. And one of them um, that has really become more obvious is I think we've lost a lot of the rigor around focusing on evidence and what is evidence to know that something is really working. It's easy when you have claims or data uh, around billing systems to make it seem like something's working, but we haven't really been able to quantify a lot of the outcomes. And so the movement around digital medicine is um, a group of people who really want to focus on uh, using the idea around evidence as a business model. So how can we really prove that the things that we're using, particularly around software and algorithms and and AI, uh, are really creating outcomes that we want to have? 
So is this not happening originally when, you know, is this, what is the, what is digital health then? If, if digital, if digital medicine is sort of a digital health plus evidence, what is, what is digital, what is it without evidence? What is it just sort of like cutesy consumer stuff? I don't know. I mean, I think, I think words are still getting shaken out in the industry, but I've heard digital health being used for billing systems, for medical records, for pretty much anything that has software in it that touches some version of healthcare and wellness. And so I think in some ways it's kind of been like the greenwashing of healthcare. So um, in some ways the digital medicine movement, and it's really the not just medicine being something that you're treating, but the practice of medicine, kind of going back to the roots and thinking about the scientific method and when the scientific method breaks down for certain technology products, but how can we actually have something that has evidence to it? So one of my favorite pieces um, was published in Stat News a couple of weeks ago. And if you look at the 309 digital health unicorns, one fourth of them have never published a peer reviewed paper. And about one in 10 have only published something in a top ranked journal. And so if you think about how decoupled we've become from value based on um, what actual value you have underneath, I think going back to making sure that we're all agreeing on what the outcomes are and having some ideas around evidence are really big. And you can start to see this too, and we can go into it more around regulators who are really starting to create opportunities for digital products to go through a more streamlined um, and regulatory uh, based path. But do you really think this is a question of digital and not digital or a question of, you know, good management versus bad management? Because I really, my, my you know, I personally believe this whole concept of digital, digi the word digital will peel away from this very soon because it's, you know, not how we think about any other industry. Don't use the word digital in front of manufacturing or banking or any other industry where digital has, per you know, permeated deeply into it. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I, there's a really nice piece that Eric Topol and, and Steve Steinfeld had written, which is uh, when they started the journal for digital medicine and nature, they said, over time, we hope that this is just becomes plain medicine. I think the reason why perhaps digital or really tech is different is when Steve uh, Steinfeld and, and uh, Eric Topol created this journal in medicine and nature called Digital Medicine, and they also had the same idea around having digital um peel away from medicine over time and it's just medicine. What I do think is different is there's a couple mindsets in tech that really don't make sense in healthcare. And frankly, they're even breaking down in tech. Predominantly, this whole idea around move fast and break things. I think um, in healthcare, the idea around move fast and break things, one, results in low evidence, but also um, it, it's caused a huge problem around having mass surveillance in tech, uh, losing trust in a lot of tech products. And frankly, in healthcare, that mindset means uh, people die, right, or become significantly injured. And so while I think there's definitely a movement to how do we create innovation, which is what I think that mindset was trying to do, you can actually do that by, like, if you look at a lot of work that has created standards, that creates an opportunity for, for innovation to occur because you have two groups agreeing on what, um, what they actually mean to work together. And so... I agree it's part management, but I think it's also part tech influences that need to be shed. So it seems like you're trying to almost embrace a lot of what I would call the traditional medicine aspects and bring it to tech, the role of evidence. And um, uh, the piece that you're describing was um, uh, was excellent. Um, we'll also include a link. Um, I've written about the topic of uh, the importance of um you know, sort of ending the digital exceptionalism and realizing the role of, of needing evidence, not only in digital health, digital medicine, but also in regular medicine. Um, at the same time, I think that there has been something appealing about 
not moving fast and break things, but the sense that um, the you know people have described um, uh, medicine as sort of the calcified hairball of healthcare, where everything is just sort of so hard to change that it almost seemed to need. You wish you had more of a way of kickstarting things. Is there some element of that that's that's still appealing and that we shouldn't throw out with this sort of the tech mindset? Oh, definitely. And this is what I why I think a lot of these concepts around digital medicine, and I hope eventually medicine um, will start to happen, is you start to see so much personalization and consumerization of healthcare. A lot of the sensors and wearables that are starting to have more evidence around them and become clinically validated are cheap, and and consumers are able to be more self-directed in their own care. So I think that might even happen regardless of whether or not um, we push towards it. Let me ask you about that. How involved? So this is some topic Lisa and I always sort of come back to. How involved do you think most people want to be in their own care? I think it's sort of a really core question because you know what you know you may, you know sort of the patient will see you now. There's this one model of the hyper involved patient who wants to optimize their sort of health, a sort of quantified self kind of patient where they're checking everything. And I, you know, I've taken care of diabetic patients where that's exactly right. But as Lisa has written, you know, beauty, with characteristic eloquence, um, there really is for a lot of people, they don't want to think about being sick. They don't want to be patients. They don't want to interact with some health monitor thing perpetually. And they want to live their life and not have healthcare be any part of it if they can possibly avoid it. Where do you think most people fall out in that? I mean, I hope for everyone that we eventually create tools that you don't have to think about your healthcare, right? Like the best kind of tools are the ones that are passive and you allow somebody to, to be able to do... To just passively monitor you all the time? Do you think that's really the ideal? I mean, <laughs> as long as you trust who's getting that data. But I mean, if, if I had diabetes and I could passively um, have a tool that is managing my blood sugar over time so that I do not have to be a, a part of my day-to-day existence. And a lot of people, I mean, think about the quantified self-movement of creating that artificial pancreas. So I think as long as the trade-off of surveillance isn't too high, um, I think it's a blessing for people to not have to spend as much time thinking about their health care. And the people who do have to think about their health care, it's just mostly out of necessity um, or perhaps out of interest. Yeah, but I think, uh, I think, that's only half a story, though, because I think, you know, it's all right, fine. You can passively survey people and find out information about them. But the outcome of that is now the patient has to do something different. So it has to be activated into behavioral change by and large, not 100 percent of the time, but often. And, you know, people are by and large motivated different ways by different things. And most of medicine and most of the products we've seen have, you know, singular approaches to this, particularly on the digital side. You know, all people get this program, you know, X, Y, Z. And, uh, you know, nothing really has proven to be that effective yet in getting people to activate and stick with programming. What do you think about that piece of it? I think this is hard to, to talk in, in like big, broad terms. I think there's small areas where these start to be, start to shift. Yeah. So there are a number of companies around this movement around digital therapeutics. So the way I think about digital medicine is there's like, there's a chunk of tools that just do measurement. So these are like digital biomarkers, diagnostic tools, and you want to make sure that those things that are measuring are as accurate and as reasonable um, and usable as possible. Then there's software and algorithms that do some sort of intervention. And these are these ideas around the digital therapeutics. Um, some all all interventional products are brain and behavior. Some of them, um, I think, you're starting to see movements around cognitive behavioral therapy. So CBT that's digitized that works pretty well for for a lot of people. Sure. And then there's a second class of them, which is 
these ideas around tools that are therapeutically active. So there are companies like Achilles, who's creating a video game for pediatric ADHD, and then another company, MedRhythm, who's using sound and music to effectively reheal the brain uh, post-stroke and for other neurological conditions. And for these, this is what is exciting for me is a lot of these companies are structuring themselves like drug companies. They're raising money like drug companies, and then they're running clinical trials like drug companies. So you really get to like test and see whether or not they're able to create interventions that have meaningful impacts. They'll be the companies that have called in front of Congress in the future for overcharging patients for their impact. Hey, 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 hey. All right. Virtue virtue signaling noted. No, no, this is a huge, this is a huge and important question, right? Because there was this amazing piece by Goldman Sachs, which asked a provocative question, which is, is curing patients profitable? And very depressingly, effectively, the answer was no. And if you look at a lot of digital therapeutic um, products, they actually are not treating symptoms. They really rewire the brain in a way that you don't need the product long term. And this creates a huge issue around how to do pricing. Right. On the other hand, if you're able to cure more often or more things more often and not have it be a miracle whenever anything worked, I think that that could be profitable um, in the long run. I mean, I absolutely think pharma's completely and other companies are focused completely on trying to develop cures because there is... A kind of a there's some sort of you know backwater thinking out there that says oh companies actually don't try to come up with cures because it's not profitable, and every I don't know anyone in R and D who isn't trying to cure terrible diseases, um, the folks I work with. Um, so I want to get back to this thing, this landscape. So first of all, no one I know has a, be- a broader or deeper understanding of the digital medicine landscape than than Andy. Andy Hitrick sort of has these beautiful kind of industry standard. Um, articles she's written and, and, and graphics she's made, but could you describe just let briefly what your current work is and what you are what you're focused the most on, and then we'll try to catch up a little sure. bit on your history. Um, so today, what Electrolabs is working on is we're helping pharma and biotech companies and med device companies do what's called decentralized clinical trials. So using remote monitoring tools to collect digital specimens remotely. So that could be temperature. Um, blood pressure, any sort of metric that you're looking remote and looking at across a couple areas. So one, thinking about how accurate those measures are, how usable they are. If the, if the tool looks like a prison bracelet or you have to recharge it every day, you don't have the adherence around it. Um, some parts are on the cybersecurity aspect. So all of these are connected tools. Every connected tool has some level of vulnerability. So thinking about how to manage those. And then third is around the data rights. Because even if the tool is accurate, even if it's usable, even if it's secure, that doesn't solve the Facebook Cambridge Analytica problem where the company might be reselling the data on the back end and really how to manage who gets access and when. And in some instances, you might want more people to have access. So say you want to be part of a clinical trial and there are certain parties that you want to make sure have access to your information and other instances that you don't. But figuring out how to do that data rights has been historically quite difficult. So one of the things I remember I was asking you about or trying to understand better is so um, is where you fit in in connection with companies that both have been on our show and who are both familiar with like Evidation and Conexa. Um, Lisa sort of I think led the invest, an investment um, uh, in a previous life in Evidation. Um, we've had both the CEOs of Evidation and Conexa on our show. Um, we just you know and, and I know that they work directly with pharma companies. And Edion too. Um, uh, Eddie Ed, Edion as well. Um, I, I don't see them as much as a digit as as doing wearables but maybe they do. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you fit in in terms of these companies like um, the ones that we're talking about, Evidation Connects and maybe Edion? Um, you mentioned that you sort of are involved earlier than them. Could you help us understand that? Yeah. So all these companies have been, um, one thing that we see is 
there's really not a lot of, I mean, there's sometimes people make it seem like there's competition, but really helping people focus to build out the evidence in this area is really good. Um, for both, um, at least the way I understand it, make sure you talk to, to uh, Chris and Deb as well from Connexa and Evidation, is they're really focused on making sure that they build the best measurements as possible. So um, Connexa, it does a really good job of making sure that they build out that full digital biomarker. A lot of companies, when you use the wearable, the, the measurements that come off that wearable or sensor are not really ready for a full submission to the FDA. Um, and so you'll need another data science team to really help um, understand and refine that. We don't touch the actual patient data uh, today that comes off any of the wearables. So you might work with Electra and then use a certain wearable or sensor and then hire somebody like Connexa or Evidation to manage that process. So they sort of do the thinking with you in advance, sort of like the th they, they sort of would work with you almost like as a consultant in advance to understand the space and to and to frame up the questions. And then they would pick someone after that to do some of the actual work. Yeah. And there's often two things. There's the clinical development of the algorithm for the digital biomarker and also the operational piece. So sending out the wearables, setting them up when somebody has an issue with Bluetooth, who do they call? And today, most of um, what we've I've seen is uh, where Evidation and Connexa and other groups like this have done a really good job is around that clinical development. And um, today, what uh, what Electra does is helping with selection of the tool, making sure that you're selecting a trustworthy one across those four principles, and then also with the operational components. Wow. So it's so interesting to be having this conversation because I, when you were growing up, it, it seems like such a long way from where, you know, um, I guess in some ways a long way, in some ways not. You were saying that you, um, just to take a half a step back, you grew up as a daughter of a dentist and a nurse. So you were close to healthcare, but you didn't pursue medicine yourself because of an aversion to blood. Is that right? Uh, that would that would be accurate. At family, we always had family dinners, and um, my mom works at Boston Children's in the surgery, and so she would come home and talk about all these surgeries, and my dad would talk about everything that he saw in the clinic, and they were very good about sharing what they did on their day to day basis. And I wanted to, I really wanted to, like I interned when I was in high school um, in the post-surgical ward at Boston Children's and I, I, I just, I struggled. So they always thought this was funny. Like I pass out when I get shots and they're like, how are you going to help with healthcare? Like bodies have blood <laughs> in them. But it looks like you found a way. So you, um, uh, you wound up at Duke where you thought about physics, but then found your way to economics. And then um, as one does, um, you joined McKinsey, were there for a few years and found your way to... Uh, you know, lead a leading private equity firm, KKR. Um, and what, what were you thinking about when you were when you were sort of pursuing that aspect of your career? Um, didn't you think there was a lot more blood at KKR than there was in the average healthcare clinic? Boom. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Accurate statement, which is now why I'm in healthcare. <laughs> Not there anymore. But I. Well done, Lisa. Damn. <laughs> no, I, I'm very grateful for the times that I've had. I for me, I, I think. Uh, it has seemed so obvious for me. I think for some people on the other side, it seems like a shift, but I just think there's better ways that we can handle care, particularly care at home. McKinsey was a chance for me to get a number of reps with different types of organizations. Um, we, we, I got to spend some time in Arkansas as a, a public study where they started to build the first bundled care uh, groups. And so, and, and segments. And so that was my first indication to really understand better on the incentive side of how to create better systems in healthcare. And then at KKR, I spent more time in healthcare, but I was, I started getting frustrated because a lot of our portfolio companies, I was seeing that more and more of them were incorporating care or software, not just as billing systems and ways to power the company itself, but 
the software was actually delivering the care itself, like through these digital biomarkers and diagnostics and, and therapeutics, and I wanted to spend more time. And so for me, it just seems natural that if I wanted to work with these types of products, I need some experience to build them, and that's when I decided to shift and, and go into coding. So you're living the dream. You're living in the dream at KKR, you know, with the with the fancy office and yeah. um, enjoying your work. But you're 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 lured away by coding boot camp. Okay, and you became a code monkey. Code monkey, get up, get coffee. Code monkey, go to job. Code monkey, have boring meeting with boring manager Rob. Tell us about that coding boot camp. Do they have like lanyard lanyards at boot camp? They, uh, yeah, all the things. Uh, I wish I could go back to my 16 year old self and tell her she would have loved computer science, and I just didn't think it was for somebody like me. I mean, I was like doing all these little things. I made websites for my friends, but I just like never viewed myself as a developer. Why? Why not? Why not? What was it about you, at your 16 year old self, that you didn't see yourself as a developer? I don't know. I, I think there, I mean, frankly, there's probably some gender component to it. There were very few women who were in, um, especially at Duke of the, I think of the 32, uh, software or of the 32 people in computer science, there are only a couple that were women. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I had my own server where I was like hosting websites on it, but still in my head, that was not like a, I did not view myself as somebody who would do that. Interesting. And this is why I like having these podcasts because I think, I mean, who knows, like maybe you end up doing something like this in time. I think people put these artificial barriers on themselves. They're like, oh, I'm not technical or, oh, it's too late for me to do that. And it's really never too late. Everything's moving so quickly and there's so many opportunities. There's these boot camps, there's short-term things, and it's so fun to build. Like, I think it's so human to build things and being an engineer just allows you the chance to do that. And the other aspect of that that I wanted to sort of touch on, because I think it's 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 something that a recurrent theme that I hear is you also made the bold decision on your own to hire an executive coach, like as you were sort of thinking through what to do. Could you just talk very briefly about that? Because that really struck me as an amazingly good and um, sort of a very you decision that I think more people could be inspired by. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, in, across many things, like, you know, we go to the dentist a couple of times a year to clean our teeth. Like, who do we go to to clean our brains? And so, I mean, I think therapy is a really nice way to do, like, brain cleaning, meditation. And I've, I've been practicing more of, like, a Buddhist path to do brain cleaning. And there's a version of that for professions, and that is executive coaching. And um, at least in my firm, I mean, I was in a, a post-MBA role and was coming up for principal, and everyone was like, what are you doing? Like, you're never going to be as good of a developer as someone who's been starting at age 12, like this makes no sense. You're too late in your career. And it just like felt like I wanted to, but I was scared, frankly. So I hired a coach Mm -hmm. to constantly tell me that I was doing the right thing. I mean, my friends all thought this was crazy. My family was like, why do you want to be an engineer? You know? Hmm. Uh, So, so how old were you? Can you, would you be willing to say how old you were when you finished that? Oh, sure. That experience. I, Oh, I started, I, I quit, um, the the role, or I, I left the role at KKR mm-hmm. at 27. Great. So now here we are back at the present. And um, after, after um, a little bit more time doing spending, you, you got excellent at, at developing, spent some time at Achille, also went through an MBA program at Harvard. And now we're back in the present. <laughs> you always got to get that Harvard pit, bit in. I know everybody, everybody went to Harvard. Um, everybody but me. So I, you know, I think it's great that you are here now CEO of a company 
of a, of a software focused company, you know, really kind of act living your actual dream um, and thinking about and speaking publicly about the issues around data sharing, collaboration, security, privacy. Tell us what's top of mind for you right now when, th- when you think about these issues. Yeah, so I think there's two parts. So I think about security and data rights as two separate things. So the security aspect is often when somebody's making an attack to a system to gain access to it. Right. And the data rights is, is often no attack, just um, agreements around data sharing that may not serve the person who had been part of that. Sure. If you're if you want to jump into it now, there's some really interesting movements that are happening around regulatory bodies like the FDA and um, cybersecurity research communities that we can jump into. Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, so there's a one one place to start this story is with a big group called DEFCON. And are you, are you both familiar with DEFCON? Since you've mentioned it before, yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Great. So DEFCON is this big underground hacker conference. About forty thousand people all descend on to Vegas together. Um, and historically, this has been a place, and probably still today, if you choose to go, which I hope you do, uh, where you generally do not bring any of your, your standard devices, like get a burner. Um, everyone's kind of playing tricks on each other, like make sure you're using two-factor and, and encrypted systems when you're sharing any of your passwords or whatnot. Um, and so within DEF CON, there's a number of villages that sit underneath it. So one of the villages that you probably have heard of is the voting village. And so they're the ones last year who bought a number of voting machines and then hacked them and then sent a report to Congress around and the vulnerabilities that are in a lot of voting systems. I mean, this is like white. This is white hat, hat hacking. There's right? some white hat and some black hat. So I would uh, I would say you have to pick your groups. So where white hat is the ethical hackers who responsibly disclose, black hat is a little bit uh, uh, hacking for their own benefit. There, there's there are both there. Um, within the biohacking village, which started about five years ago, that group is predominantly filled with white hat hackers. And there's some groups of biohacking village, which is the quantified self body hacking. And there's another group um, of white hats, which uh, refer to themselves as security researchers, and they have been spending more time around medical devices. So this is like, this is like Burning Man, but for, but, but for coders, like a yep. coding man, kind of a, kind of a crazy conflagration. Are you there? I mean, what do you guys do besides sit around and hack all day? I mean, do you literally sit in front of terminals and work on stuff all day long? There's so many ways to experience DEFCON. There are definitely people who do what's called capture the flag, which is like different games that are through terminals. There's a ton meeting with other people that you mostly only interact with online. And then there's a lot of people um, who are starting to bring together other groups. So, for example, there's a number of white hats who had started to hack on medical devices. Um, many medical devices do not have really good security. One example is pacemakers. So pacemakers, they try to spend as much of their uh, work extending the battery life for it. One of the parts of pacemakers that is computationally expensive is encryption. So a number of different pacemaking pacemaker companies didn't do really good jobs of installing encryption. So they were able to create a relatively non-trivial hack where if you ping the pacemaker, uh, which normally sits in a low-power mode, it would go into a high power mode and you could drain the battery from five years to a very short time period and also reverse engineer the um, shock. Wasn't wasn't Dick Cheney famously concerned about this? And he turned it off for this exact reason, which is, I think, a huge sad point of all these technologies that if they're not trustworthy, people don't adopt them. And so when you have this situation, if you're in tech, like if this happened with Facebook or Microsoft, you say, hey, we have this. Uh, vulnerability. We'd like to disclose it to you. There's often a way of handling um, coordinated disclosure and then perhaps some sort of bug bounty and the company ships an update and you're fine. 
in the med device community, they would say, oh, thank you. Uh, we're going to sue you now for tampering with our device. And this created, obviously, a very huge heated environment between security researchers and med device companies who are like, well, these things are way more important than Facebook or anything that's happening on our software, like computers. This is like what's building and sustaining life. You can't just sue us. And one of the common phrases was, well, we have to go to the FDA and we have to recertify uh, before making any sort of changes. And the FDA very bravely has been saying over and over again for a number of years to dispel the myth, you do not have to go to the FDA to recertify around security updates. So much so that three years ago, the FDA attended DEF CON. And this is completely brave and, and um, rare because Many feds will go to DEF CON, like NSA, CIA, they're all there, but they often go undercover. Um, it's rare to have a fed who goes above cover. And they went to the security researchers and said, we want to work with you. And if you look at the last couple years, the FDA has put out some really thoughtful and well-accepted guidances around pre-market and post-market security. And about a, a month ago, the FDA launched a new initiative called Hashtag We Heart Hackers. And if you go to wehearthackers.org, it's a movement to have more med device companies attending DEF CON. And if you go this year, it will be a completely revolutionary year because Mayo Clinic, Thermo Fisher, Abbott, BD, and a number of other big companies have all committed to work with security researchers at DEF CON this year. Wow, that is so interesting. So I, I, um, mind is blown. Yeah, I'm like watching mind, her, know, like, like the gears. Well, you know, it's funny. I wrote about this, I remember, many years ago, this topic, because I remember starting to become aware of it. And I think about... Um, how many, I work at a firm where we have a large security and privacy group, but especially cybersecurity. And like, we're getting so many calls from clients because they've been hacked every week that we have to hire, we, we can't hire enough people to deal with this. I mean, it's really- It's a real life a problem. Profound, you know, issue. And um, and I'm, I'm thinking about this question of whether given technology and given data and given all this, both security and privacy issues, um, do we- have a reason to be thinking about the next version of the Hippocratic Oath uh, again. You know, I know it updates every uh, century or so. Is it time to to rewrite that? I don't know if that was a teaser because <laughs> David told you about this or not, but this group at DEF CON uh, called I Am The Calvary created a Hippocratic Oath for connected medical devices. So the thought is... We're trying to tee, we're trying to tee you up. <laughs> we're, trying to, we're trying to help you out here, Andy. So if, um, so if a lot of these connected products are in some instances, augmenting or in some instances, changing the role of the clinician uh, in patient care. Shouldn't the software developers, manufacturers, and frankly, anybody who's involved in the implementation to the hospital systems, um, regulators, rethink about what it really means to put these things into practice? So the Hippocratic Oath has uh, five principles, mostly focused on security. You can read it. They're ethical and security principles. And there's a piece that's about to get published in JMIR. Um, on the oath. So it's kind of exciting to watch what's coming out of DEF CON, which is historically been this underground hacking community, and really move into both regulatory and traditional academic settings. Well, it's fill if it's filled with, you know, traditional business people and regulatory people, will it go away? I mean, will it change the, the contour and the, compl you know, the complexion of DEF CON so they have to go more underground or somewhere yeah, else? Yeah, has it become too respectable Yeah, to quote the guy in um, uh, Mission Impossible? I, I, I know that that conversation is constantly happening. <laughs> I, I think there will be different groups over time. But this kind of goes back to that same point where people say, oh, well, like, isn't it too late to get involved? How do I actually 
you know, like, should I not do software engineering? Or should I do security? I haven't been doing this in, for my whole time. It's just all these problems are changing. So I think this is a really good time for more people to go. There's so much opportunity, as you've seen from your own companies, that um, it's time to get involved. So what's next for you? Last sort of question. Where do you, where do you, where, where, where do you see yourself heading in the next year or two? Yeah, so we are, um, with Electra, we're going to be building out this idea around the nutrition label, so really helping people think through what are products that have evidence around accuracy, usability, cybersecurity principles, and also the data rights and data management. For us, I'm an internal optimist, and I hope that we are able to adopt these tools in a safe and effective manner, and uh, we'll be hiring for the team, so people who really believe in this mission would love to have them on and, and help spread uh, safe and effective connected technologies. And so for you personally? For me personally, I'll, I'll, I'll be spending a lot of time with that group, um, with, with Electra, and then um, I'm also spending more time with the, the DEF CON Biohacking Village group as well. Wow. All right. So also... Note to self, don't get on her bad side um, <laughs> or live a blameless life. You can choose. Um, so thank you so much um, for, for joining us today. That was a, a captivating, mind-blowing very show. Very interesting, yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Great. Thank you so much. All right, well, that was, that was pretty mind-blowing, huh? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I've been thinking about this on and off, uh, especially the stuff about medical devices for the last few years. And I, you know, I think the fact that there's actually a community that gets together to figure out how to do this, to actually hack into these things, and that you don't know which color hat they're wearing when they're <laughs> doing it, right, is really interesting. And I think, you know, we in the medical device community talk about the possible risk about this. But this is way beyond risk. This is reality, you know. And I think the medical device community is woefully um, unaware of the challenges they face here. I, you know, I think it's complex because, you know, there's the uh, huge risk, as you're describing, but there's also sort of some real opportunities. I mean, there's a very well-known story now of how this sort of a hacker community mm-hmm. sort of hacked this diabetes uh, measurement right, device right, to right. sort of create Just, the, yeah. the um, a sort of a continuous monitoring yeah. approach um, and then wound up ultimately even bringing the device maker into it. So sort of showing a potential. But that's, for, that's you know, that's hacking for creating a product that serves you better, which is one thing. And then there's hacking for pain or causing to cause harm, right? Which I think is a, a whole nother category that people don't think about so much. Right. Well, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> so please, uh, please, uh, in addition to uh, hearing us quote Spider-Man, please remember to rate us. <laughs> Please remember to rate us on iTunes and leave a comment. Help others discover the show. You can follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow Lisa Sunin, AdventureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, IDF Pharma, the industry's leading path to market strategy practice, bringing more great medicines to patients. You can find them at www.ideapharma.com. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonics Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Stay inspired. What he said. Good monkey have every reason to get out this place. Cold monkey just keep on working. See yourself pretty face. Much rather awake up eat a coffee cake. Take bath, take nap. This job fulfilling in creative way. Such a load of crap. Cold monkey thinks someday he have everything. Even pretty girl like you. Cold monkey just now, Code Monkey says someday, somehow, Code Monkey likes Fritos, Code Monkey likes having Mountain Dew, Code Monkey very simple man, Big born fuzzy secret heart, 
Lord, don't be like you. 